0: Thank you so much for the greatness of love, the love that was bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the sacrifice. And as the poem says, thank you that you first loved us, that we could love you and have this opportunity to love you in return. Thank you for wearing the thorns on your brow. Thank you for the, just the willing and desiring sacrifice that you had made so that we might have life. I pray, Father, that today you will help us to be attentive to your word, more importantly, attentive to your spirit, that as he speaks to us, we might respond. And Lord, that we will not be the same. Father, change us, stir us, work within us, Lord, to not be content in going through the motions, but living a a alive, vital, quickened relationship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed the freedom and the confidence you gain when you know what you're talking about? Have you ever noticed that? Have you noticed how bold you can be on how something is done? Case in point, my brother Nick Finn, I haven't asked him this permission, I'm just going to use him as an example. When he lived in an apartment um, over in that area, Meadowbank, when he lived over in Bank, he had a he had a, a leaky faucet in his laundry. Do you remember that leaky faucet, brother? And we were discussing that, and he had never changed a leaky faucet before. And I, I, I mentioned to him, it's really easy. I gave him a wash, I gave him some stuff. He looked on YouTube, how to change it. It's very simple, isn't it? Now, the confidence he's gained, now whenever he comes across a leaky faucet, he can address with confidence. I know how to take care of this, and he can jump straight in. That's the confidence of you gain when you know about stuff. Is that true? Now, you ask me about mathematics, you ask me about accounting, you ask me about finance. I am lost. I am lost. I have no clue whatsoever. You ask me about coding, you ask me about computers, you ask me about cooking. And I can show you a zero to slim knowledge on any one of those things. Coding and computers being nothing, cooking being very slim, ask my daughter Emily about that one. But that's the reality. But you ask me about, say, certain sports. You ask me about certain sports teams. You ask me about the certain sports and how the strategies are used and the things that are involved and the skills that are incorporated in playing those team sports, I'll I'll talk you under the table, man. I'll sit down, and I will probably win most conversations I have regarding those sports because I know what I'm talking about. I've partaken of those things. You ask me about theological truths, about the Bible. You talk to me about the reality of God's existence, and the philosophical ideas that are found behind those things, I I cherish those conversations. I love sitting down and discussing those truths with people. Why? Because I have personal, intimate knowledge of those truths, not only intellectually, but experientially and spiritually, because I know. And the confidence that is gained from that is actually quite liberating. When I read about the actions and the journeys of the apostles, you know what I see? I see intentional, deliberate choices made in order to best position themselves to tell people about Jesus. That's what I see. And irrespective of the context that we're going into, this greater goal of having Jesus' message go forth took priority within their lives. For example, they went to foreign lands. In Acts 27, verse 1, you hear, sorry, Luke writes about Paul and, and the others of the troop that are on a ship headed to Italy to go to Rome. During that, they encounter a storm and turned in verses 39 through 44, they are shipwrecked. Paul actually makes mention of this in First Corinthians. Um, They walked into hostile environments. Last week, we looked at Paul in Lystra in Acts 14, where he was stoned and left for dead. When he gets up once again and goes back into the city and then moves to Derby from there. In Acts chapter 16, you read about Paul and Silas being put in prison and beaten. Actually, I believe it's in verses 23 and 24. We read this. Now, as a reminder, I'm not putting it up there. If you can turn to it in your Bible. So, Acts chapter 16. Verses 23 and 24 says this: and when they, meaning Paul and Silas, oh, sorry, meaning the Romans, had inflicted many blows upon them, Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So these men experienced beatings. These men experienced persecutions. These men experienced hardships and confinement because of the gospel. But what was their motivation? Yes, their motivation was love, and that motivation spurred them on because they knew what they were talking about. I'm going to explain that a little bit later. In Acts 17, you see Paul discussing alternate contradictory beliefs in an effort to communicate the gospel. In Acts 17, verses 22 through to 25, we read this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. To God the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man verse twenty five nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything so you have Paul and Silas in three different contexts facing three different oppositions about And each of it, they took it as an opportunity to minister the gospel, to share Jesus Christ, spurred on by love. They were placed in intentional places because it was fulfilling the purpose for which God had called them. So these men in the book of Acts, motivated by love, were also motivated... By purpose, you see, the truth of Philippians: 121, "For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, a truth that we all know and a truth that we all intellectually understand, is often superseded by the truth of Philippians chapter 2, verse 21, which states, "For everyone looks out for their own needs." for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Sadly, I think this is the state of the modern church in the Western world today. That the, for to me to live as Christ, as great and as inspirational and as challenging as that is, we are more Philippians 2.21. The modern church today is more interested in our own interests rather than those of Jesus Christ. And I think a primary contributor to that is because we don't know what we're here for. I think we don't understand our purpose. I think we don't understand the call that has been placed on our lives and the reason why we are still here once we became a believer in Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered that? Why didn't, when we became saved, be taken out of this earthly existence straight away. Why weren't we delivered from this mortal coil, from the corruption of this immortal of this mortal body and be taken back into the immortality that is awaiting us? You know why? Because there's a purpose Jesus has for us here, a calling that is placed on our lives. And I'm just going to look at maybe two or three things today because there is a there's a whole bunch of things but i think that the two two of the things that we we'll look at i think these two cover most everything and the reason why it covers most everything is because each one of us are individuals each one of us have our own in intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ I'm not going to take a blanket and like throw it every throw it over everyone and say this is the answer for everything that you're going to encounter what I'm going to do is going to give you the tools to say okay Lord then how then can I fulfill that calling in my context as a grandfather in my context as a grandmother in my context as a child as a student as a as a person that lives down the road and has this is my neighbor how do I fulfill that purpose does that make sense So today is going to be somewhat practical in regards how we live motivated by purpose. Starting off with our first one, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That seems simple, sort of. And that he died for all, that those that live should henceforth, that's what the old King James says, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This raised a very interesting question for me. How do you stop living for yourself? How do you stop living for yourself? Actually, why should you stop living for yourself? for yourself from the day that we are born we are taught to be independent your parent you rely you rely on your mom and your dad as a baby and there's nothing better when you hold your baby in your hands and you see them and when they acknowledge you when they smile and when they laugh that's that's one of the greatest things as a parent but as they get older what are you doing walk to me walk to me they hold your hands. Have you ever noticed when there's a child learning how to walk, how they they hold your parents' fingers, they hold the fingers, and they're walking along, and they're taking those really deliberate steps. And then when they start to get used to it, you move your hands away, but their hands are still up there. Have you ever noticed? That? And then they fall, and it's really funny. But but you, you you're teaching them. you're teaching them to take a step on their own, aren't you? You're teaching them to be independent as they get older. You are putting in place values and, and, and ethics and, and morals that will help develop them to be responsible young people in society and then that they won't be so reliant on you, correct? As you get older, this is what we do. We raise our children to be just amazing people so that when they're not, when they're not around you, They'll make the right choices. We, we teach this. We teach our children to be independent. We teach our children to be self-reliant. We teach our children with a good work ethic to try hard. And those are wonderful ethics to teach them. The sad thing is we teach them to an extent, and, and we still exercise this ourselves, that when we become Christians that we are to live lives of dependence, we find it so difficult because we've been equipped to do things on our own, haven't we? That's what makes it so hard. How do you stop living for yourself? And, and, and I think, I think the best teacher of how you stop living for yourself, I think there are two of the greatest lessons in the world. One, get married. Now, this is, no, no, this is nothing on single people. Please forgive me. I'm not, I'm not saying that you can't learn this. What I'm saying that when you become a husband or a wife, you find out that you have to live for someone else. Timothy Keller makes the point that when he got married, he'd been married six months and he, he decided to go somewhere else and pick up something that he wanted to get and he was 45 minutes late home and his wife was really, really upset. Where were you? Why didn't you call you? This is back in the days before you had mobile phones. You know, you had to go to a pay phone somewhere and, and things, but he gets there and he said it was at that point he realized the ability to make individual decisions based upon his own interests had now disappeared. He now had to consider his wife's feelings, his wife's concern. That's, I think, one of the greatest lessons that you learn. When you get married, you learn how to stop living for yourself and to start living for someone else. You know what the next greatest gift is? Next greatest lesson? Become a parent. You become a parent and have a child dependent upon you, and that's when you start to teach them and train them. That's how you start to learn. You make decisions based upon what's not good for you, but what's best for your family. Should I be here to do this? Should I be here to do that? How, the, how will this benefit my kids? How will this help my wife? If you're married, if you're married and you try to live your life as a single guy, meaning you go out, hang out with your boys, do what you want, go go playing pool, go doing your movies, go playing your sport, and you're not taking into consideration your wife, you get back and she's just there. You know what will happen? You won't have a marriage much longer. Or if you do, you'll be two individuals living in the same house, having no relationship whatsoever. That's how, that's what happens. What needs to happen is you need to stop living for yourself as a single guy and living as a married man, who what, according to the Bible, is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And what's sad is, even as a married couple, you could be neglectful of your children because your desires take priority over their needs, and think, okay, whatever. What happens there? There's a disconnect between the children and the parents. And then, as the parents, as the, as the children get older, it just gets further and further and further away. When you enter into a relationship, you think about other people's needs. Well, technically you should. You consider the effect it has on them. You're concerned and you examine the consequences that it will have. This is what it means to live for someone else, to live for one another. Not only that, you also find that as you live for someone else, you're living in a way that brings them joy. You live in a way that blesses them. And you'll find over time, you start becoming united in your desire. Now, the reason I use that as an example is because how is it that we are to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again? It means this. It means to live in a way where God's heart takes priority. It's to live in a way that values God's values as the priority. That values God's kingdom as the priority meaning this that as you read through the scriptures and you read things like this forgive one another even as God in Christ's sake forgave you you know what that means that is God's standard and God's hearts therefore I will forgive it means that I will love as he has called me to love that means I will be as patient as he has been patient with me does that make sense it means that as the more time we spend within the Word of God, seeking His heartbeat in the way He relates to others, we'll find that we'll end up falling into line with that. It'll take place naturally. I was speaking with a gentleman. He's a minister of a church over in Castle Hill. And he, he asked me this question. He says, Joe, what do you think when it says rejoice always? And again, I say rejoice. And I said, it means rejoice always, and that's, I I say, that's how I see it, I don't understand what you're, where you're coming from, he goes, no, I mean, even when you don't feel like rejoicing, does that mean you rejoice, even though you don't feel it, is it, should, are we to be doing like the, the fake it till you make it type thing, and I was like, well, I think people can tell when you're fake, that's the thing. I mean, you can walk around as much as you like, and I know a number of people. You know those people that are always, always, and you can tell they're not legit, but they're always, well, how are you going? Oh, praise the Lord, brother. It's good. and you. But their world's falling apart, and you know it's not genuine. Actually, that's what a lot of people think I'm like. But, I find it really interesting, that he, but we we were talking about this, and and the reason why I say this, and I shared with them, we can we can be disciplined and we can make the right choices. You know, we can we can be loving, we can be forgiving, we can make even even though you may not feel like forgiving. But here's what happens, is that when you discipline yourself, there comes a point in that disciplining that it becomes a part of your nature. What I mean by that is. I, I go exercising around three times a week early in the morning and, and at first it was a chore. I really disliked it. Oh, I've got to get up again. got to get up again. Now, when I miss one of my sessions, Ash would know this, you, you, you miss it. It doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel right. So it is when you spend time in the Word of God. It starts off being disciplining but you, the more you force yourself to just spend time in the Word of God when you don't, you feel the difference. It, you know what's happened there? It's gone from being a disciplined action outwardly to an inward desire internally. And it happens naturally. That's what happens. You, do you know I like spending time with my wife? Bradley looks surprised. Brad, hell, wow, Brad, I'm upset. I like spending time with my wife. I like spending time with my kids. Well, most of them. No, I, like I like spending time with my kids. And it's not a forced decision. It's not a, it's not a hassle. When my workday ends and I get to go home, I look forward to going home and seeing my children. I look forward to going home and seeing my wife. And it's just a natural response of being around them. This is what it means. So when it comes to the things of God, His desires, the more we spend time with Him, become our desires, and what are his desires? Well, the Scriptures teach that he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, because souls are important to him. People are important to him. We, we find that because his goals are, are that of, that we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity is important to the heart of God. And therefore, what are we commanded to do? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. We are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are are called to be holy, for He is holy. That is His heart. And therefore, because that is His heart, that should be our heart also, to desire the holiness of God. We are to love one another even as He has loved us. Why? Because that is His heart. And therefore, as his heart, as we spend time with him, that heart becomes ours. Who knows Psalm 37.4 off the top of their head? It's one of the first verses. It's a a beautiful verse that says, Delight yourselves also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that does not mean, that does not mean that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he's going to give you a million dollars because that is your desire. That does not mean if you desire yourself in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, He's going to give you that relationship you wanted with that person because that's your desire. Now, what it means is that if you delight yourself in the Lord, He gives you His desires, He gives you His heart, His longings. That's what He gives you. And you'll find that you have a longing for what? For the lost. You have a longing for what? For unity, especially when you see disunity. You have a longing for what? A longing for compassion when there is injustice. A longing to live in a way that shows who Jesus Christ is to others. That's what it means. And and within that, within that, you can you can put a whole bunch of other things within that. You can see the likes of say the great commission. With that, within that of living for someone else, you can see the, the likes of, of of our church function. You can see all of that. But you know what that means? That means we are to no longer live for ourselves, but unto Him who died for us and rose again. So, living for Jesus starts with me making the exact same choices and following through with them just as I did when I got married and became a married man. What I mean by that is this, is that, I put in place when I got married, when I said I do, I put in place within my life, and my wife did the same, a structure that protected our relationship. We put in a, the necessary framework that would cherish and nurture our relationship as a married couple. And that meant, that may have meant sacrificing certain relationships, that may have meant disconnecting with certain individuals which means this, that as I cherish that relationship I have with Jesus Christ because now I am to live for Him, means I will put the necessary steps in place within my life that will cherish, that will nurture, that will strengthen, that will develop my relationship with Jesus Christ so that I will not be one of those people who looks out for their own interests, that we won't be one of those people and and not be concerned with the interests of Jesus Christ. That we might be people who no longer live for themselves, but rather for Him who loved us and rose again, who died for us, sorry, and rose again. Second verse, second verse, being motivated by purpose. You know what our purpose is? If our first purpose is to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Him, our second purpose follows on from that. 1st Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all for the glory of God The Westminster Confession states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever But how is that done? And it is here that this broad statement can take shape in our lives, especially in regards to fulfilling our purpose God has given us. In, practic- in a practical sense, let's have a look at this. You know what this means? See, we often, we often term this whole idea of glorifying God and we, to an extent, mystify it in, in, in a sense of this is restricted to those who are of great spiritual stature. That's reserved for the pastors or for the preachers. That it's reserved for the leaders or the singers. That it's those who are on missions. That, that we leave it for all of these people to show this is what the glory of God looked like. And we, as we move into God's presence and bring glory to His name. But that is not the case. That is not the case. Because we are told that it could be as little as eating. It could be as small as drinking. But whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, which means this, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as an employee, you can conduct yourself bringing glory to God by being a good worker, by being someone who works with integrity or someone that, that takes the initiative for the benefit of the company. As a uni student, it might be something as simple as deciding not to partake of some of the... Uh, suspicious deeds that uni students get involved with cuz I know about the education system as a sorry as a family it might be involving yourself in the lives of somebody else as a family it might be hey i'm going to adopt a single guy within church or a single girl within church and as a family we're going to invest into this young person and bless them it could be as something as simple as that to bring glory to God. As a neighbor, it might be getting to know who they are. It's out of curiosity. How many? I know the Finns know their neighbors. Um, how many people know their neighbors? Could you raise your hand, please, if you know your neighbors? That's really cool. That's really cool. So, as a neighbor who may not be a Christian, might know and come to discover who Jesus Christ is through you, and bring glory to God. As a husband, as you love your wife, as Christ loved the church, bringing glory to God. As a wife who submits herself to her own husband as unto the Lord can bring glory to God. As a Bible study member, as a Bible study member that participates in, and has some input in your your cell group to bless somebody else, that brings glory to God. As an auntie or an uncle that looks after grandchildren, or not even looks after grandchildren, just gets involved and invests into the people here at church, or even to somebody else outside of church, that can bring glory to God, as someone who invites somebody to the gingerbread house. It could be something as simple as that. It could be bringing them along here so they get to know what Christians are about. And in that picture, discover who Jesus Christ is also. And someone who is rejected can bring glory to God. That you go and give a gospel tract to someone and they tell you to get out of your face and shut up and leave me alone. Thank you so much. And walk away. That can bring glory to God. How you conduct yourself in a very suspect situation can reveal the glory of of God, as someone who desires to live in holiness, as someone who seeks to unify, especially a devised or divisive community, as one that fellowships afterwards here or fellowships during the week, as one who steps out by faith and just has a go at saying, Can I tell you about Jesus Christ? You know that all of those things have nothing to do with leadership. All of those things have nothing to do with being in a prominent position within the church. All of those things have nothing to do with how a church functions. It's got everything to do to help maintain unity within the church. It's got everything to do with how you live as an individual, irrespective of your context. Does that make sense? All of these things are to bring glory to God. That is your purpose. Which means when you leave here and go home and and, and spend time with your family, you're glorifying God right there. When you spend time reading your word in front of your kids, when they get up early in the morning and the first thing they see is you reading your Bible, that is bringing glory to God. Bringing glory to God is the acknowledgement that everything you are and everything you have is because that's what God has bestowed upon you. And you are directing all of that acknowledgement to Him. That's all that is. It is the acknowledging of who He is and the position He rightfully holds in this universe, in this world, in this land, in this church, and in your life. That's what bringing to glory God, glory to God means. I'm starting to talk too fast. But that's what I, this is, I, I, want you to, I want you to grasp this. Because when you read, when you read what those three examples were with Paul and Silas, that's exactly what they were doing. They were directing, whether it was Acts 27, to the unknown God. The first thing they did was direct that unknown God. I'm telling you, this is who it is, the God that created heavens and earth and everything. That's who it is. That when they were in prison, being beaten and, 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 and put in stocks, you actually read in that chapter that Paul and Silas, they sang hymns. They sang hymns and praise to God. You know what that was doing? That was bringing glory to God. In all of those situations, even even in Acts 16, when they were actually on, sorry, Acts 27, in the uh, being transferred to Rome, and you read through that chapter, which we'll look at a little bit later on, you can recognize them bringing glory to God. See, that was their purpose. They were motivated by love for their God to fulfill the purpose of one, living for Him instead of themselves. They put themselves in situations that they didn't want to be in. They put themselves in situations that they knew they weren't going to be accepted. They put themselves in situations that they knew they would most probably get harassed and persecuted for it. But why would they do that? Because of their love for their Lord. That was their call. And they said, I will do this. What does Matthew chapter 28 say? If you've got your Bibles, Matthew 28, this is the Great Commission. This is the command they received from their Lord. Verses 18 through to 20 says this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age this was their call these men were motivated by purpose they had like rick warren says purpose driven lives and what gave their lives such purpose is the life transforming message and relationship with jesus christ this is to be out if you want to know what you're to be doing this is where it starts you want to know what you're to be doing. You're, you might be sitting there saying to yourself, well, look, I'm not as theologically equipped. I'm not theologically adept at communicating my faith to other people. I find it difficult to stir up conversations with strangers. Look, that is okay. That is okay. If you turn to 1 John chapter 1, and these are some of my favorite verses, especially to address that particular issue is that we are, we are told this, and I've shared this before, and I'm sorry to be a parrot and continually repeat myself, but this is part of us fulfilling our purpose, fulfilling the call placed on our lives. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, and which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You want to know what your purpose is when it comes to communicating the greatness of who Jesus Christ is? It is right there in verse 1 of 1 John. It says, That which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have handled and touched with our own hands. You know what a witness does? You know what a witness says? You know what a witness testifies to? What he has heard, what he has seen, and what he has touched. That's it. That's it, and that is all we have been called to do. We have been called to go and preach the gospel, testifying of what we have heard, what we have seen, and what we have touched. John shared this at prayer meeting this week in Luke chapter seven. It was Luke chapter seven, correct? Luke chapter eight. Luke ch- yeah, was it was actually Luke chapter eight, yes, of the man that was healed of the demons. And after he was healed of the demons, he goes to follow Jesus in the boat and says, I want to come with you. Jesus says, no, you go back to your hometown and you tell people all God has done for you. And that's what he did. And he transformed the town. The power of a changed life speaks volumes of the reality of God's existence. That is our purpose. That is our role. You can't say either. See, if anything, this should embolden us. If anything, this the confidence that Nick has to change a, a faucet washer, the confidence that I have to talk about rugby and the All Blacks, the confidence that that, that Andrew has to talk about finance. <laughs> finance the confidence, all of those things. See, that same confidence is ours now. You know why? Because the message we have, how much greater is the message we have better than changing a washer in a tap, better than talking about a rugby team from a great country, better than talking about finance? How much greater is that message that can transform a person's life and that the role that is played by us is one to live for him and to stop living for ourselves and to glorify him how much better see this is our role this is our purpose and and we like the disciples are called to fulfill such a purpose so once again we will not be one who looks at our own interests but at those of Jesus Christ that's what we're to be looking for that's, that's, that's our heart. That's our desire. Look, when I look at the examples of these men, I see the amazing grace of God that instilled within them such a resolve to see God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Their ability to see through the Spirit, see every circumstance as a means by which the gospel can be shared by which God can be glorified. By which loving and living for Jesus could be expressed openly, regardless of the context, and see each context as an opportunity to fulfill this call of glorifying God. For example, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 27. So in Acts 27, we read how these guys are on their way to Rome, and... On the way to Rome, and they were prisoners as they were being transported. And it resulted in them being able to proclaim God's word and to have God be glorified. So in chapter 27, verses 21 to 25, we read this. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I really like the confidence he says. Then, okay, verse twenty-two. Yet now I urge you to take height, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, "Do not be afraid." Now, uh, Paul, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. What does Paul do? Even in this context, in the middle of the storm, he brings glory to God and recognizing that God has his hand at work. This results, if you read with me in verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. See this? He is a prisoner. He has been transported. He is in a storm. He experiences a shipwreck. And what does he do? He directs everything to the glory of God. He takes every opportunity as a means by which the gospel can be communicated through action as well as in word. Why would he do such a thing? Not only because of his love for his God, but because he knew what he was there for. He knew he wasn't there because he was a prisoner. He was there because God had placed him there to share this message with those men. He had the right perception of what his life was about. Look at Acts chapter 16. In their imprisonment resulted in one of the greatest things to take place. You know what happens in this prison in Acts chapter 16? The jailer becomes a Christian. The jail These guys are in jail. They are beaten. They are in stocks. If you read with me, I'll tr- I know it's a little bit, but starting at verse 22, we read this. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows, which is what I read before, go down to 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas, this is while they were bound and while they were imprisoned, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried, with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" And they said, "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. you and your household. Look at that. They're in prison, they're beating, they're, they're beaten. They sing, they pray, a miraculous event takes place, they stop a man from killing himself, and they lead him to Christ. I don't think Paul saw that as a a hindrance. The fact that he was in prison, I don't think he saw as a setback. The fact that that he was in prison, he saw as a means, who can I share the gospel with? The fact that he was in prison, how can I glorify God in this situation? The fact that he was singing and praying with his brother Silas and the whole prison was listening to him. When the doors opened, why didn't anybody else run out? I think Paul said, Stay here. No, don't. We don't have to go. Because it was an opportunity to communicate the reality of Jesus Christ. They were fulfilling their purpose. He made every choice in regards to his purpose. Once again, in Acts 17. Turn, go go over one page to Acts 17. We read this. So in discovering different truths, we read a similar thing as well. So in verses 23 and 24 of verse 17, I read this. Uh, that's the unknown God, which I read before. Now down to verse 32 and 30, to 34, we read this. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius and the Areopagite, and a man, and, sorry, and a woman named Marius, and others with them. So even in that context, even in that context, in the discussion, in the Areopagus about the unknown God directing it to the person of Jesus Christ, he saw and understood his purpose. I am here, Lord, to direct people to you. And as I direct people to you, I will. People responded, not everybody. But people responded. You know why? Because he had the right understanding of his position in this world. That he was one that was concerned with the interests of Jesus Christ and not his own interests. And that he interpreted everything that he saw as a means to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ and to build up the saints around him. That's what he saw. That's what we're to see. Now, I haven't asked his brother's permission, but I I shouldn't. I, I, I won't say any names, but he'll know who he is. He's here. But this brother shared with me about some of the job opportunities that he has. And the choices that he is willing to make is always taken in the context or the greater context of this. How can I minister wherever I go? This job opportunity might be available, might lead me here, might lead me there. But it was always, and even talking with his employers, I would like to do this for this reason where I could help out this community, where I could tell them because I'm a Christian, tell them about Jesus, and every decision that is made by this person is done so in the greater context of what's God's greater call on my life. That I live for Him. That I seek to glorify Him. That I bear a witness to Him. That's what I do. And I, when he shared this with me, I was greatly blessed and greatly encouraged in the fact that he viewed his life the exact same way Paul viewed his life. So my encouragement to you and my challenge to you, brothers and sisters, is that as we are concerned with our own interests, as we, as we look, and there's nothing wrong with being secure, please don't misinterpret me. There's nothing wrong with being secure. There's nothing wrong with setting plans in place. There's nothing wrong with having A, B, and C all together. There's nothing wrong with that, but we must always look at whatever we have and whatever we do and wherever we are in the greater context of God's greater purpose, that He called us to live for Him, not for ourselves, and He calls us to glorify Him, not ourselves, and He called to testify of Him and not ourselves, so that we might be Not people who are like this, but rather people who are like this. That we might not know this up here, that to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But to know in here, that for me to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. Let's close in a word of prayer. And as I pray, the music team can come up. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the motivations that you clearly outlined within the lives of your people in the book of Acts. We thank you that these were men and and women who served willingly because one, they they loved you, and, and two, they understood the purpose that they were called. Father, give us such an understanding. Give us such a love for you for your word, for your message, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.